guys and welcome to the GenoCasties. My name is Mariana and today we're going to be discussing, well, this is going to be our first episode of Nucleic Acids. And yeah, I skipped many topics because uh, we just come from genetics and I just thought that, you know, it would be extremely interesting to know the biochemistry behind how alleles work and genes. So the first subtopic of this is DNA replication as well as how DNA gets stored. So without further ado, let us get started. First of all, we are going to be discussing nucleosomes. So there are differences, as we have discussed, between eukaryotic and prokaryotic DNA. And basically, eukaryotic DNA is associated with these basic positively charged proteins that are called histones. And prokaryotic DNA, which is the one of bacteria, is the one that lacks histones. So we call it naked DNA. And, you know, it's basically... Most of the times you're just going to have a bacteria with one big chromosome and, you know, that chromosome is just like floating around. <laughs> so um, a nucleosome, which is the one of the eukaryotic um, bacteria, well, eukaryotic cells, <laughs> uh, is going to have, well, each nucleosome, which is our region, is going to have about 150 base pairs, which are going to be wrapped around the core of eight histones, um, which are going to be like, eight ball-like proteins, and next to it, you're going to have a H1 um, histone, which is like a stick. So imagine, well, it's just kind of weird, but <laughs> eight balls together forming a square, like a cube of eight balls, and next to it, you're going to have a stick, which is going to be the H1 histone, and wrapped around this, you're going to have DNA. So this is going to be one nucleosome. And obviously, you're going to have lots of nucleosomes, which are going to be linked by a linker DNA. So, you know, it actually works like a thread and as if you had something to store it. So linker DNA looks like a, yeah, it looks like a thread with, um, how you call it in English? Buttons? Yeah, so like, a, yeah, it looks like buttons. <laughs> um, and then if you zoom it out, then you're going to see the chromatin fiber and then you're going to see the chromosome. So now if you zoom it in, you're going to, well, like from the biggest structure, from the smallest structure, you're going to have first the chromosome, which is whenever your DNA is already coiled. And it's like the most packed form that you could have. And then you're going to have the chromatin fiber, which is like an arrangement of many of these nucleosomes. But they are formed like in a type of, you know, like a brave. <laughs> it's just kind of strange, but... Then you're going to have the nucleosomes, which are going to look like bets on a string. So that's how you call it. Well, if you speak Spanish, it's like imagining a bet and a string. I don't know if you understand them, but yeah. <laughs> and then you're going to have the double helix, which is going to be, you know, the DNA itself. Um, so some the reason why uh, these fibers exist is because you're going to have very large uh, genomes. And so we need to store it somehow. And imagine our DNA, it could stretch for over two meters if you would place it in a single line. So that's the role of nucleosomes. They're going to help to coil DNA and they're going to ensure that you still get appropriate access to it. So, you know, if you need to code for one region, you're going to be able to easily get there. So now let us discuss DNA replication. And this DNA replication relies on the principle of base pairing. 
which is what Watson and Crick found out a long time ago. Well, it was not so long, actually, yeah. It was back in the 1950s. So the way they were able to know it was because of this picture, which consisted of DNA refra refraction from a DNA molecule, took taken by Rosalind Franklin, which, you know, we all know the story about her. She was not giving the Nobel Prize because she was not alive anymore, but they sort of like stole her photograph, so it was pretty unfair. But anyway, the way X-ray refraction works, um, it uses the crystallines that are formed uh, from the DNA molecule, and so they're sort of like a it's not a reflection, it's literally it's a refraction. <laughs> so the you're gonna get like some black uh, marks in the photograph and that's how they were able to know the measurements as well as the principles of DNA. And so they were able to know that there is hydrogen bonding between purines and pyrimidines. So purines are the ones that are double ringed and pyrimidines are the ones that only have one ring. And you're going to have adenine, thiamine, guanine, and cytosine. So for some strange reason, they are always represented with the same color, and adenine normally gets represented by pink, thiamine blue, guanine, and cytosine. Well, one of them is orange, and the other one is yellow. So this is important because on every image, you're going to see that sometimes they join, ad well, all the times, actually, they join adenine and thiamine with a double... Um, with two bonds of hydrogen and guanine and cytosine with three bonds of hydrogen. So remember, pink and blue, two. Um, yellow and orange, three. That's how I never forget it. So, you know, just in case that you have to draw it. So the slightly positive charge on, on um, thiamine, for example, and the slightly negative charge on adenine they allow for the two hydrogen bases to bond, and this is how complementary base pairing works. So um, once they knew that DNA clearly had this double helix form, um, they were also able to interpret that there were anti-parallel strands. So as you know, <laughs> one of them is always represented upside down. This is also very important if you're asked to draw a DNA molecule. And... Yeah, you also have to be aware that DNA-based pairings, um, pyrimidines always go with purine, you know, just like, just to recap. So purines are guanine and adenine, and pyrimidines are thiamine and cytosine. So now let's discuss about the semi-conservative replication. Um, this was actually, actually mentioned in one of the first episodes from the genocastase. But just for you to remember, the way that they found out that um, the semi-conservative model was the correct one was with the mesosol and Stahl experiment. So they had this bacteria that they made them replicate. So um, when they needed to replicate, they put this radioactive phosphorus. And so the bacteria, every time they replicated, they would use the radioactive phosphorus. Well, it was only for one time, the replication. And then they replicated again, but without the this radioactive phosphorus, these isotopes, and they're, you know, they had the normal DNA once again. So what the scientists did was with the first generation, the one that had the isotopes, they ultra centrifugated it, and so they wanted to see how heavy were the isotopes, you know, like if they were in the bottom or not. And once they had replicated um, once one more time, 
they wanted to see how the strands were separated because the normal um the normal molecules would float more you could say than the ones that were heavier you know because they were heavier so the first time that you know if the model had been conservative meaning that um one strand was completely different from the other one like there was one parental double strand and one daughter double strand and they were separated um then from the first replication you would already have two lines, which are the ones of the heavy isotopes and the one of the lighter isotopes. But this didn't happen. And instead, they only got one line. So that means that DNA was not completely like replicated as new, that something was going on. So they decided to replicate this DNA for a second time, and they did another centrifugation. And interestingly, this time, you had two lines. So they were saying, like, okay, what's going on? Because... You know, if DNA instead got combined, you know, like in some parts you had all strands and in others you got new strands, then, you know, it would always have been mixed and you would only have one line, you know, like one line in the middle, either not as light but not as heavy. And it didn't happen. <laughs> so then they found out that you were going to have a parental strand and a daughter strand, which is a semi-conservative model, meaning that... 50% of the DNA, which is the parental strand, is going to be the old one, and 50% is going to be the daughter strand, which is the new one. So, um, you know, it's going to bury this replication between prokaryotes and eukaryotes, and the reason why is because in prokaryotes, you're only going to have one chromosome, so you're going to have this point of origin, which is going to start, and then it will finish, as simple as that, only one time. But if you have a eukaryotic replication, they're going to have multiple points of origin. So it's so large that, you know, you have to have many points. Um, so it's really important that you remember that DNA replication is carried out by a complex system of enzymes. So you're going to have helicase, DNA gyrase, or isotopo isotopomerase. I was able to say it like two minutes ago. DNA primase, DNA ligase, and DNA polymerase 1 and polymerase 3. So you should also know each of the roles, but don't worry, I'll explain it in one moment. And the rate of replication is approximately 100 nucleotides per second in eukaryotic. But in prokaryotic, it can be as fast as 1,000 nucleotides per second. And also, the human genome has around 3 billion base pairs per haploid set. So that means that if you're going to have a 2N set, you're going to have 6 billion base pairs. So that is, there's more people on the planet than you having your base pairs. But anyway, it's pretty impressive. So um, another really important concept is to know the difference between leading strand and lagging strand. So you're going to have your, your strand, the one that you're going to copy, right? And you have two. So one of them is going to be the leading strand, which is, um, so well, this set of enzymes is going to code against the sense that is right for them. And the lagging strand is the one that is going to be coded to the other way around. So it's important that for you to know that replications occur in a five carbon to third carbon direction. So as we all know, um, DNA, uh, each nucleotide has a uh, sugar called ribose, well, the oxyribose, which is going to have five carbons. So 
the one attached to the nitrogenous base is going to be number one, then number two, number three, which is going to be the one that is going to be attached to the next nucleotide, number four, and number five, which is going to be the one attached to the phosphate group, well, its own phosphate group. So it occurs in a five to three direction, meaning that you're going to have carbon number five and you're going to follow up to number three. And that's how um, replication is going to occur. But if you have a lagging strand, then it's going to be the other way around. Because DNA polymer is three, which is the one that is in charge of placing nucleotides, um, she's, um, she can only do it in a five to three direction. So that's why you have the lagging strand. And yeah, it's a lot more complicated. You know, she's like a like this mischievous child. It's always annoying, and you're like, why do you exist? But yeah, they exist. So now, without further ado, let's discuss each of the enzyme, the enzymes. So first, you're gonna have DNA. Um, I remember this time, topoisomerase or DNA gyrase. Um, and what it is gonna do. Remember that this DNA molecule is going to be like super coiled, like super tangled. So it's going to kind of like make it smoother, like easier to deal with. And so it passes really fast. And so the DNA is like, okay, I'm, I'm already relaxed. Like I'm not going to be fighting anymore. And then you're going to have the helicase, which is like a zipper. So it's going to separate the two strands. And, and so imagine that you have a zip, which is like super tense, then gyrus passes and then helicase passes and it unzips the entire um, DNA strand. Well, the two strands. And so then you're going to have this single strand binding proteins because obviously these strands, they are going to try to stick together. But the single strand binding proteins, they are not going to allow that to happen. And so they're going to be like this clips. And then you're going to have um, primase. So DNA polymerase 3 the way I like to think about it, it's like she's pretty distracted and she never really knows where to go to. So she needs a guide, which is going to be the primase. Well, the primer. So the primer is um, important for you to know. And it is an RNA change of about 10 bases. So they're going to be used as a starting point for DNA replication by DNA polymerase 3. And they are synthesized by DNA primase, which is the enzyme. So DNA primase puts uh, the primer in the strands. And then you're going to have DNA polymerase 3, which is the one that's going to um, put the, nucle the DNA nucleotides, you know, it's going to do the complementary base pairing. So she is, she's like the main character here, because she's the one that's going to create the daughter strand. And then you're going to have the ligase, which is going to make sure that everything's like together, beautifully put in yeah but if you have your dearest lagging strand which is the one that annoys us the most oh well yeah something else that is really important is to know that um the leading strand is going to be following the replication fork so remember the replication fork is is the way that um dna helicase is opening you know so like if you zipped it down, that's going to be the replication fork. So lagging, uh, leading strand following the replication fork. But against the replication fork is the lagging strand, the lagging girl. So um, 
you're gonna have this Okasagi fragments, which are like a few base pairs in length. And first, you're gonna need a primers pair Okasaki fragment. And so then um, DNA polymerase 3 is gonna exchange, well, yeah, it's gonna pair the nucleotides in one part, and then it's going to have to move to another part and then do the same. But it's going to do it in its own direction, except that it has to kind of like jump in order to get there. Um, and then another, which is like the little sister, which is DNA polymerase 1. She's always, well, DNA polymerase 3, she, the, the lower star, sadly. She's always going to leave one or two nucleotides, which are going to be missing like a, a pair. Because you had the primers from the Okasaki fragments, uh, you know, the, the RNA fragments. So what DNA polymerase 1 is going to do is to exchange this and she's going to put the new DNA nucleotides this time. And finally ligase, which she's the girl is going to pass and she's going to make sure that everything sticks together, that they look beautiful. And so you are going to have your beautiful new DNA strands. So looking at this in a video uh, as an animation, it's pretty cool. I recommend you to do that, but also... If you need to listen to this like many times in order to learn the process, that's also a good thing because there are many names. And I also like to remember this as if it was a TV series because you don't forget that way. So now something important is about non-coding regions of DNA as well as DNA profiling. So remember, not all the DNA is used to code for polypeptides. Actually, just a small fraction of DNA is used for polypeptides. So... um. For example, we know that the human genome codes for about 20,000 genes with an average size of 1,000 bases. And so that would mean that the coding sequences of the human genome are about 20 megabases. And the genome size is around 3 gigabases. So like one is like 1,000 times larger than the other one. So that doesn't make sense that only it's like less than 1% that you're going to use for coding. Um, so, yeah, actually, 98% of the human genome is going to be non-coding. And we always wonder, like, why would this happen? You know, it's actually pretty expensive to maintain. Like, it requires a lot of energy. Um, but, you know, it most obviously have a function because otherwise this would not have survived for such a long time. So the functions of non-coding DNA are the next ones. First of all, regulators of gene expression. So many of these are going to be DNA sequences which are going to regulate the gene expression in various ways. So for example, you could have promoters which are going to be placed just before the genes and they're the ones that are going to sort of like called the RNA polymerase enzymes that they're the ones that are going to start the transcription process and some other DNA sequences are going to either decrease or increase the rate of transcription. And then you're also going to have introns, which are DNA sequences found in the eukaryotic genes that get removed at the end of transcription. And it's like when you e you're going to edit your mRNA and introns are the ones that are out. Then you are also going to have the telomeres. Oh yeah, about introns. Remember, exons stay introns leave okay we can continue <laughs> about telomeres they are repetitive sequences that are going to protect the ends of the chromosome so they're the ones that shorten as cells divide and this is why 
one of the reasons why people age. And then you're also going to have genes for tRNAs. So the genes are going to code for, code for RNA molecules that do not get translated into proteins, but they can instead form tRNA molecules, well, like, like the, yeah, you know, the transfer RNA, uh, which are going to be really important for translation. And you can also have tendon repeats as well as DNA profiling. So this has happened to me in exams. Don't put that tandem repeats are a function of DNA other than coding for polypeptides. All the ones that I mentioned above are the ones that are for other purposes of DNA. Tandem repeats are like um, are considered like a technology, but don't think that it is a function. Like it's not a biological function. So a tandem repeat is a sequence of two or more DNA-based purges that is repeated in such a way that... Um, you're going to have like a light end to end. So um, tandem repeats are generally going to be non-coding, um, but you could have them present in protein coding regions, but you know they're not going to pass. So each tandem repeat is like a little sequence, like a CTA, 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 which could get repeated like nine times or eight times or seven times. And this is going to depend a lot on the person. So the fact that you have so many sequences um, and so many repeats makes it unique for each individual. So even though you're from the same species, you're going to vary between repeats because, you know, it's not coding most of the times. So this is how you're able to form this DNA profile. And it's actually the basis for tests such as, um, you know, this electrophoresis that they sometimes use in order to profile your genetic material and it has been now used for a lot in criminology as well as paternal tests and um you know tracking species we have actually discussed this by now um yeah it's pretty interesting so um now we are gonna discuss about dna sequencing so Actually, there's a section here that explains how PCR and DNA profiling works, but because we have already discussed it, I think it's like kind of redundant. So yeah, let's keep skip ourselves to DNA sequencing. So by definition, DNA sequencing is the method used for deducting and the precise order of nucleotides, well, deducing the precise order of nucleotides within a DNA molecule. Since all DNA molecules have the same sugar phosphate backbone, the main role of DNA sequencing is to determine the order of the four bases. So adenine, guanine, cytosine, and thymine on a strand. So DNA sequences is going to be used for many purposes, as we already know, which can be DNA profiling, paternity suits, forensic cancer analysis, genome studies. And there was this guy called Frederick Sanger back in the 1970s, and he published a book called The Principles of DNA Sequencing. Um, so it's kind of, it was kind of confusing at first to understand it, but I think after a while you kind of like get what happens. So the third carbon, um, as we all know, we have just discussed how our, uh, ribos, uh, the oxyribose molecule looks like, well, yeah, <laughs> sugar looks like. So, um, what he did was that he used this D, D deoxynucleotide, um, so remember that ribose most of the times is going to have two OH groups, like the second and third carbon, they're going to be OH. But this uh, weird, the deoxynucleotide, it's going to have no hydroxyl groups. So it's going to be like, 
carbon 2, H, which is the normal deoxyribose. But carbon 3 as well, H. And why is carbon 3, carbon 3 so important? Is because it's the binding site of the next uh, sequ- of the next nucleotide, yeah. So if you have a high uh, hydrogen, then you're not going to be able to join uh, the next DNA nucleotide. So that's how they were able to determine which base was uh, missing. Because this um, nucleotides, they had like a tag. So if you had adenine, then you would follow this tag, which had a color on it. If you had cytosine, then you would stop at a certain point with this color and so on. So that's how they would mark. Imagine, they mark each little nucleotide with each color, you know, and it would just stop at each nucleotide. It was so crazy. But that's how they were able to determine which... um, yeah, you know, like the order of the nucleotides. And they, so for this, they used colors and, yeah, like fluorescent tags. And finally, well, yeah, <laughs> this is just like a tiny, uh, you know, anecdote. But I actually got to go to McGill one time and it was back in Montreal in Canada. And I got to see one of the first machines that they had to sequence. And guys, it was crazy. Like they had these glasses of, um, fluorescent markers which obviously didn't have any more liquid in it but you know it was just like how how were you able to tag things with such big machines and it it was kind of strange I actually got close to the guy that was in charge of it and he told me sort of how the machine works I don't remember exactly how but yeah you you look for photos of that time if you if you have free time it's it's pretty cool to know the story and finally our last subtopic now it is our last subtopic, is the Hershey and Chase experiment. Um, so here, you, they want, what they wanted to test was which, ones, which was the genetic material. So they didn't know if it was proteins or DNA. And so what they did was, they, they did knew, you know, the chemical composition of the two of them. So they knew that proteins had sulfur and they knew that DNA had phosphorus in it. So for this they had two groups. Once one of them they well you know they had two groups of bacteriophages and bacteria that they would infect. So the bacteriophage um the way they work is that they pass their DNA to the bacteria and so the DNA of the bacteriophage is going to get in control of the bacteria. So it's going to kill it and the bacteriophage is going to reproduce and you know what they what viruses do? So um, they wanted to know what did the bacteriophage pass to the bacteria, if it was proteins or DNA. Um, so the sulfur group, the, the isotope labeled sulfur group, had heavy sulfur. And the other one had heavy phosphorus, the other group. So they tested it, right? So the bacteriophage uh, infects the bacteria. Okay. And then they put them on a centrifugation inside of a centrifuge yeah and so they separated um between the material of the bacteria and the material of the virus so the virus was obviously floating because you know it was like the the light guy (laughs) so in the two groups what they saw in, in the first one the one with the radioactive sulfur they saw that what was floating above was the bacteria, you know, the bacteriophage, the virus. So 
If the virus was floating, that meant that sulfur was not the material that they were passing to the bacteria. So proteins did not pass the material. Yeah, proteins were not the genetic material. And on the second one, the results were different because phosphorus was inside of the bacteria. So the phosphorus was in the below part, uh, you know, in the part of the bacteria, not the one of the virus. So that's how they were able to know that the genetic material was DNA and not uh, proteins. So it wasn't elegant, but it was a gorgeous experiment. I still remember when they explained to me this in class, and I was so amazed by that because I was like, how are these guys so clever? Um, but yeah, that would be everything about DNA replication. I hope